Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Terrorism and Organized Crime. I'm your host, Mark Locks. Today we're going to be talking to Paul Rexton Khan about his new book, Cartels at War, Mexico's Drug-Fueled Violence and the Threat to U.S. National Security. This is a quite amazingly good book. It's very short but packed full of information. Um, Mr. Khan covers everything from the background of how the drug war began, how it's laid out, the groups involved, how it affects other governments, what government responses are, and then also gives some excellent recommendations on what, if anything, can be done about this program. So um, I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Okay, welcome to another episode of New Books in Terrorism and Organized Crime. I'm your host, Mark Locks, and today we're talking to Paul Rexton Khan about his excellent new book, Cartels at War, Mexico's Drug-Fueled Violence and the Threat to U.S. National Security. Hi, Paul. How are you going? Hi. Good, Mark. Good to talk to you. That's good. And uh, you're in Washington, is that correct, right now? No, I'm in uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Pennsylvania, right. Sorry, Army War College. I'm just making assumptions there about where it's located. Oh, that's right. Yep. And um, thank you for having the interview today about your book. I really enjoyed the book. I was saying to you in the pre-interview, I learned so much. My full knowledge of this area was coming from watching CNN and getting a minuscule percentage of the information that's actually involved in what's going on in this particular issue. Uh, But we'll start off with just a bit of background about yourself and how you ended up in the career you've got and ended up writing this particular book. Um, sure. Yeah, I, um, you know, this is actually an offshoot of my, my first book, which is uh, Drugs and Contemporary Warfare, which uh, actually examined how various non-state actors from insurgent groups to terrorists are actually you know, involved in the drug trade at, at some level, either to finance their, their activities or they will ingest drugs themselves to fight conventional forces. And my publisher, a couple of years back, said, um, you know, hey, uh, have you thought about writing anything about what's going on in Mexico? And I thought, well, you know, I, I think that subject is pretty well covered. But as I did some more digging around, I, what I did notice um, was that a lot of the books that had been written were mostly journalistic accounts of uh, people who basically said, yeah, I've been to Mexico, it's really scary. Um, or very alarmist books that said that Mexico was going to collapse. Um, so what I decided to do was to actually kind of take the, the flip side of my first book, which was, um, which is actually this book, looking at how a lot of these organized crime groups in Mexico are actually adapting their tactics to mimic what is insurgent or terrorist violence. Right, right. And you do so in a lot of detail. I, I'll repeat again what I was saying to you in the pre-interview, that um, when you pick this book up, it doesn't look very long, but you are very, very concise in your writing style. So there's a tremendous amount of information in what appears to be a quite short book. So uh, having said that, we, we might jump straight in and start talking about it. So you want to give us just a bit of a background to how this whole issue began in Mexico in particular. I think everyone knows a lot about Colombia and things like that, but Mexico is a fairly recent 
Yeah, it is, um, you know, it really started um, in the 1990s with uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement between Canada, the United States, and Mexico, which opened up our borders to, to free access and free movement of, uh, of goods and services. So what that did is that actually broke down one of the barriers that um, uh, allowed kind of illicit goods to piggyback, if you will, onto licit goods and to travel more freely. Um, and as you mentioned, Colombian cocaine was um, also influential in that uh, the United States, in particular, was getting very good at interdicting Colombian cocaine coming via the Caribbean. And with the opening of overland borders because of NAFTA, um, the Colombian cartels decided, you know, there's this new entryway now through Mexico. Why don't we get involved with some of the Mexican drug traffickers who have always been smuggling marijuana, and uh, some Mexican heroin into the U.S. Um, over land and use them as middlemen to get Colombian cocaine into the United States more easily rather than having to put up with uh, with the Caribbean route. Um, so that was one of the early phenomenon that actually led to the, uh, the expansion of Mexican cartels' uh, power and influence. And the other thing that occurred was in 2000 in Mexico there was an election that uh, swapped out a political party that had been in power for over 70 years. And so you had new arrangements that all of a sudden the cartels and the drug traffickers are trying to figure out, okay, well, who are really now the political bosses that we can corrupt, co-opt, and collude with in order to get this new product, Colombian cocaine, through to the United States as well as our previous products of marijuana and Mexican heroin. So... There was kind of a free-for-all that, that occurred in the 1990s, early 2000s, and then in 2006, there was another presidential election in Mexico, and that president, Felipe Calderón, decided that he was going to take a much more confrontational approach to the cartels and send in the military uh, to take them on, and that's when the explosion really took off from 2006 until today, where since 2006, there have been over 60,000 Mexicans who have been killed, and about 30,000 Mexicans have uh, disappeared. And as of last year, there's one drug-related homicide every half hour in Mexico. And there's also a sizable number of Mexicans who are now coming to the United States to seek asylum uh, from criminal violence. That's an amazing number of deaths. Yeah, it's, it's tremendous. It actually exceeds... Um, some low-intensity conflicts, for example, that exceeds um, the IRA in Northern Ireland over decades during the Troubles. It also exceeds the, um, the PKK in Turkey, the, the insurgent group there. Um, I think there have only been around 30,000 deaths. Um, right now, the only conflict that is that is close to that is the conflict in Syria. Mm. Which is a full-on war. Right, right, which is a full-on war that's been... You know, which is now two years old, going into, into three years. Um, but it is it is a staggering number of, of homicides in Mexico. And who who's actually being killed? Is it um, the actual participants themselves, the cartel operators, uh, or is it collateral damage, or is it police? Well, it's it's all of that. It's uh, you know, state agents like police and mayors, um, also journalists. The most dangerous country for journalists is actually Mexico. Um, but it's also folks who are related to the drug gangs, who are enforcers for the cartels. Um, it's also innocent people who go to discotheques 
or who are even going to drug rehabilitation centers. Um, also other illegal migrants who are passing through Mexico from other countries in Central America. The, the largest one-day massacre occurred two years ago in northern Mexico, and there were 70 migrants from Central America who were gunned down by the cartel Los Etas uh, be- because they refused to work for the gang and also refused to carry drugs into the United States with them. Um, so it's it's uh, a very target set, if you will, but it ranges from you know, ordinary citizens going about their daily business to migrants to state agents to uh, other cartel and gang members. Wow. Well, I suppose this is a good time then to move on and... Um, if you can tell us exactly who these cartels are and how many they are and how they're spread out. Yeah, you know, there are, there are actually um, there, there are actually about seven big cartels now, six or seven, depending on who you who you talk to. Um, rather than going through all seven, I'll, I'll pick out a, a couple of or two or three of the the more exceptional ones. One of them is the the Sinaloa cartel, which is um, run by one of the world's wealthiest men. Um, El Chapo Guzman. El Chapo is is a slang for shorty, uh, and he is actually sort of like a narco venture capitalist. He's um, one of the most expansionist uh, leaders of a cartel in drug trafficking history. As a matter of fact, in Australia, they they caught a couple of members of the Sinaloa cartel not too long ago. Uh, so he's actually been moving product even to West Africa. So from Australia to West Africa. Well, I'll, I'll just say that the reason why they're moving to Australia is the street price of cocaine in Australia is five times the street price in the USA. Yeah, that's so, correct. So the, there's a massive profit incentive there. Yeah, it's, it's one more market. Um, and same with the West African market. They Actually, the West Africa is a transit point for, um, for the European market, um, particularly you know, on through Spain into the UK. So that profit margin is also... Um, larger than the U.S. profit margin, so it's uh, another attempt to gain more profit. Um, another cartel is Los Etas, which loosely translates as the Z's, um, the letter Z or Z, and uh, these are, this group is actually made up of former members of the Mexican Special Forces, who used to be enforcers for another cartel, the Gulf Cartel, until they broke away and started their own their own cartel in and of themselves. They're very proficient in the use of violence, very wanton, have a uh, a very martial spirit. Uh, They will carve their initials, the Z or the Z, into corpses to to leave their mark, their criminal brand, uh, if you will. And they were also responsible for that massacre of 70 migrants. Um, They're very good at um, psychological warfare. They targeted journalists, state agents, and recently, and this is an article that I have coming up, they recently had a cyber spat or cyber skirmish with the hacktivist group Anonymous, where they actually tried to reverse hack members of Anonymous uh, to figure out who they were and to intimidate them. Um, then there's another group called La Familia Michoacana or La Familia, uh, which split, and there's another group that split off from them called Los Caballeros Templarios, which is really the Knights Templar. And there's sort of this quasi-religious, almost born-again Christian cartel that started off as kind of a vigilante group, but began the series of beheadings in Mexico, where they actually cut off six heads in a discotheque and threw them down the stairs and said this was divine justice for all those who 
to oppose their will in their in their particular state. Um, but they really, as I mentioned, started this campaign of beheadings where in by 2008, there are more beheadings in Mexico than in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. This is this is getting to a point where it's beyond movie scripts, where the characterization of these groups and what they're doing wouldn't be acceptable to a movie producer. I would laugh it out of the room. Well, yeah, that's right. And, and there've actually been you know a couple of cinematic attempts to capture um, just how how wild a lot of this has become. I think there was recently an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie here. I can't remember. I think it's called The Last Stand. Yes. Uh, or something like that, where it was you know this uh, cartel member is actually moving. Uh, back down towards uh, Mexico, um, but there is, you know, a pantheon of, of narco saints, if you will, um, or these kind of quasi-mystical figures that a lot of traffickers will pray to in order to get protection from the authorities or to grant them safe passage as they smuggle their goods into the United States, or even to seek revenge upon another group. They will venerate these particular saints in order to um, gain protection or to get good standing um, within their particular community. So are these saints dead former uh, gang members or are they, you know, living gods, so to speak? Um, well, one of them is, is Jesus Malverde, which is um, an image crafted on a 1940s Mexican cinematic star. Um, and another one is Santa Muerte, which is the Grim Reaper. Uh, and basically these two narco saints are the ones that are venerated by these traffickers in order to gain protection, as I mentioned, uh, for their, for their particular missions. So they're not actually deceased members of the cartels, but a lot of cartel members and gang members will pray to these saints, um, for the, for the souls of those who have departed. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty wild stuff. Mm. Amazing. And you also point out in the book, um, there's some quite good maps about the, the range of influence. It's quite territorial. Yes, that's right. I, I mean, the, what the, the war is really over is uh, access into the United States um, or plazas, plazas or routes into the U.S. So the six states uh, of northern Mexico that um, run along the border of the, the southern United States uh, these are really the states that have had um, a lot of the homicides. For example, uh, Ciudad Juarez, which was also nicknamed Murder City. Um, that particular city, um, for the longest time, had a murder rate that was you know, stratospheric. It was one homicide every three hours. Uh, and recently, the violence has come down where <laughs> so much so that the headline in the, in the newspaper a few weeks ago was, uh, no homicides over this past weekend. Um, so, you know, celebrating something that didn't happen, if you will, which, you know, is somewhat, is somewhat amazing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, those, uh, those six states are, are really prime territory in that, again, they're, they're the access point for, uh, for drugs and for people, Mexicans mm. seeking to come into the United States. Um, there are other areas of Mexico that are ports. Um, where precursor chemicals for processing heroin or methamphetamine or access um, to Colombian cocaine, where Colombian cocaine actually enters Mexico bound for the United States. So those areas are also um, hotly contested, um, but not quite as violent as uh, the northern states. Right, right. So the choke points, so to speak, 
of entry, the ones that, where the attention is. Right. It's also what um, my my friend Phil Williams calls strategic warehousing. This is where mm. all you know all the drugs kind of um, go to be disarticulated and uh, into smaller parcels in order to be smuggled. But these particular areas where all the drugs kind of arrive in, into these warehouses, if you will, and then are are kind of disaggregated for uh, various delivery uh, deliveries into the United States. Is there any fighting over the northern side of the border when the drugs are arriving again, uh, where people are uh, fighting to get access? Because obviously if you're entering from one side, you have to come out on the other side. Right. You know, that's, that's interesting. Um, it's not as violent as Mexico, for sure, um, because it doesn't, it doesn't actually behoove the gang members and, the, and the, the cartel members to be as violent in the United States as they are in Mexico. Uh, in Mexico, only 5% of crimes are ever solved. Only 2% of crimes ever go to trial. A small fraction of those end up being you know, a conviction of some sort, and then a smaller fragment of that uh, means prison. Whereas in the United States, there isn't that culture of impunity, uh, and that a lot of traffickers actually rely on the fact that it's more peaceful in the United States to conduct their operations. Uh, in fact, a lot of cartel members and drug gang leaders live in the United States and not in Mexico uh, because it's actually safer <laughs> for them to be in the United States than in Mexico. So, so they're running away from their own violence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, you know, it's, it's this sort of perversity that happens too where in, in the U.S. we have um, ordinary Mexicans uh, called invertenistas or uh, people who are inverted where they will actually now live temporarily in the United States and commute down to Mexico during the day for their work and then come back to the U.S. at night because it's just safer to be in the United States temporarily overnight than it is to be in Mexico. So you'll have mayors and police chiefs who actually live in the U.S. but run their towns via cell phone from the United States and will ever so occasionally go back into Mexico. Wow. Just amazing. So uh, let, let's talk about what effect this has all had on Mexico itself. Is, mm-hmm. is Mexico turning, not maybe not into a failed state, but is it, is it massively undermining um, civil operations in the country? Well, you know what, what has happened is the, the steady um, erosion of uh, Mexicans' belief in democracy and in democratic mm-hmm. practices. That uh, in, a, in a recent poll in, of Latin America, uh, Mexicans have consistently rated democracy as as not all that effective in their particular country, which is which is sad in in a lot of respects because Mexico is a democracy. Um, but what you've had is also now a lot of um, kind of transition between political parties. So we've had um, you know an election in Mexico um, last year that has brought about the return of the former political party that was in power for 70 years and who had colluded with the drug traffickers. So a lot of Mexicans were hoping that, okay, if you return this particular political party to power, maybe they can cut the deal with the traffickers and just reduce the violence, that Mexicans are just so tired of violence that they're willing to sacrifice uh, transparency and openness that a democracy needs uh, just in order to to have some relief when it comes Mm. to violence in their daily lives. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's quite astounding. Yes. It's easy to say that from Australia, where nothing like this is actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
it, is it doing anything to the economy? I mean, you're talking about precursor chemicals are coming in. They've still got the marijuana crops, which I was surprised to see was, I think you said, was still the majority or the largest crop that's being moved across the border. Right. Um, well, the Mexican drug economy is estimated to be about $39 you know, billion dollars, uh, American, which outstrips legitimate parts of the Mexican economy. For example, remittances from Mexicans living in the United States to Mexico is actually only around $18 billion, and the Mexican tourism economy is about $11 billion. Mm. Uh, however, the Mexican economy is growing uh, because of manufacturing. A lot of U.S. companies are leaving the, the Chinese market because the Chinese market wages are rising in China, so American companies are trying to figure out, well, okay, so how do we maintain profits? Well, if we move our, our manufacturing to Mexico, that reduces our transport costs. So that's actually starting to happen. Uh, the Mexican economy is also buoyed by the fact that it has a um, you know, large uh, natural gas and petroleum deposits. Uh, so that has actually helped uh, their economy quite a bit, especially during the recession. That's the danger of the drug wars affected foreign investment into Mexico? Yeah, it, you know, it has in, in sort of uh, fits and starts, just in bits and pieces where a lot of um, U.S. companies, they haven't, they haven't left Mexico, but they've reconsidered expanding their operations in Mexico. Mm. Uh, uh, but they've also hired a lot of extra private security uh, for their employees and also for their, for their assets in Mexico. So that, in some respects, is a subsidiary um, economy, this private protection yeah. um, economy that's, uh, that's kind of popping up in different parts in, in Mexico. Right. What about the tourism industry? Is that suffering? You know, it has, especially around Acapulco. Acapulco has had um, significant increases in, in violence and in homicides, and that's largely because it's a retail market for drugs in Mexico. And that's mm -hmm. really the thorny issue with, with Mexico is it's it's a, it's a hybrid node in the global drug economy. It's a, a transit country for Colombian cocaine and some Colombian heroin. It's a source country for marijuana and Mexican heroin and also methamphetamine. But it's also a retail market for a lot of these drugs as well. So it's a, it's a consumer node um, of, a, of a smaller kind. So it's this hybrid type of country which um, breeds a lot more violence because you have those features that are being fought over by gangs and by drug trafficking organizations. Mm. And what effect is it having on all the Mexican neighbors, so the United States and the other Latin American countries that border with Mexico? Are they suffering in any way, or are they even gaining in some well, manner from all this? Yeah, the, the, the countries that are really suffering are actually in Central America because they're also now becoming transit countries for... Uh, drugs on their way to Mexico than on the way to the United States. So, for example, Guatemala, um, El Salvador, and Honduras have homicide rates that are um, the highest in the region. And uh, the only other two countries that have higher homicide rates than, say, uh, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, uh, one is Colombia, which yeah. has active insurgency <laughs> going on. Yeah. And the other one is Venezuela. Oh. Um, yeah, Venezuela is, I think it's uh, just below Colombia or not, on top of Colombia. Um, and that's just because of the, the breakdown of law and order in, in the capital of, of Caracas. Um, but El Salvador, 
is permeated by a gang called uh, Mara Salma Trucha Trece, uh, which is uh, MS-13, mm-hmm. uh, MS-18 as well. Uh, Guatemala has uh, Caiviles. Caiviles are former members of their special forces that are colluding with Mexican drug traffickers on the other side of the border uh, from, from the shared border of Mexico and Guatemala. Uh, and Honduras as well is another country that has just a large uh, gang uh, gang issue and gang population. So a lot of those countries are, are suffering. And then on the United States side of, of the equation, we have you know, increasing crime rates uh, along portions of, of the border. And we also have had a, a sharp uptick in the number of homicides in Chicago. Now, Chicago is not on the border of mm. Mexico, um, but what you have up there is a, a, a turf war, if you will, um, that is occurring on the streets as to who's going to control what retail markets in that city. Uh, and that's a lot of it is related to Latin gangs and also drugs coming in from, from Mexico. Well, so it's extended all the way to the Canadian border, effectively. Mm-hmm. That's right. And we hear uh, some things on the news, certainly over here and other people around the world probably have heard about uh, the Fast and Furious and the gun trade. Um, how, how large is that gun trade? So it's, it's, you know, this is the product that's returning across the border when the drugs are going across the, to the north. Right, yeah. There's sort of a, a mutually reinforcing dynamic where you have um, you know, drugs coming from Mexico, coming northbound, and you have money and guns going southbound. Um, so it's this reinforcing cycle. Now, a lot of weapons are also coming from Central America. A lot of uh, the really heavy weapons are left over from uh, the civil wars in El Salvador and Guatemala uh, during the Cold War. So you have a lot of, you know, the 50 caliber machine guns and the, you know, plastic explosives and mines and um, anti-tank weapons and such. Those are, a lot of that's coming from Central America. Um, are they really using those? I mean, are they having fights in the street with 50 cows and any bank ribbons? Yeah, and they will actually uh, mount these on pickup trucks with uh, their own logos on the side of the pickup trucks. Um, I'm not sure of the, the precise number of Mexican helicopters from the Mexican military that have been um, that have actually been brought down. Nobody's been killed, fortunately, but a number of uh, Mexican government helicopters have been brought down by these weapons. Um, a lot of these these groups actually will will manufacture uh, what's, what are known as narco tanks. These are, these are trucks and vehicles that are up-armored that have turrets with uh, 50 cals mounted on them um, just to break through blockades that are set up by other gangs or other cartels or even the Mexican military. It's just incredible. That sounds like the, the wars in Africa with the, the, under, the technicals yeah. driving around with the 50 cals on the back. Yeah, and, and you can see it from across the border. You can see these groups going at it um, with one another. Um, what's becoming a real worry is is how, you know, the younger members of, of these gangs are willing to take on U.S. Border Patrol and immigration folks more directly uh, and more violently than they have in the past. Mm, that's incredible. Um, so what, is, what has been the government response to this in Mexico? Uh, well, the Mexican government's response um, during the Calderon years has been has been kind of twofold. One is reliance on the military for uh, patrolling the streets in collaboration with some local law enforcement um, when they can find local law enforcement that isn't corrupt. Uh, and on the other side is uh, judicial reform as well as law enforcement reform. 
So the Mexican um, legal system is based on um, the inquisitorial system. It's not based on the adversarial system. So you still have a very Napoleonic way of conducting trials where there's, you know, the judge is also uh, the investigator yeah. uh, in many respects. Uh, so they're actually transitioning into a more uh, adversarial type of legal system that, for example, we have in the United States. So we have a lot of uh, partnerships here in the U.S. with Mexican uh judges and lawyers as they begin this, this transformation to a more evidence-based system, uh, one that is not reliant on, say, confessions and just testimony. Uh, and the, the new president in Mexico is trying to organize a gendarmerie uh, that's based on, say, the French or the Italian model. Mm. This is going to take some time. And, and there have already been a number of police reforms in Mexico, especially at the national level, as a way to backfill the military. So the hope is, okay, the military can get off the streets, they can get a more national police force that is less corrupt than, say, state police or municipal police, uh, and that will be one of the ways that you can actually have a, a more legitimate government presence through a non-corrupt law enforcement agency of some kind. But it's going to take some time, and that's... Uh, you know, a lot of Mexicans just don't don't have that time. No, which is what you were talking about earlier with the breakdown and mm-hmm. confidence in democracy and I suppose civil society. Right, and especially when you have troops on the street, you know, um, because soldiers are not trained to be police officers. So you have no. an increase in the number of human rights complaints against the, the Mexican military, in particular the army. Um, and that's just by virtue of, okay, they're they're not trained to do it. They're also... In some respects, uh, corrupted by the drug traffickers anyway, mm. and are recruited by the drug traffickers, especially Los Etas, who are again former military, so they know exactly the weaknesses that the Mexican military has, and especially the Mexican army, and will directly try to recruit individuals to come over to their side. This sounds very similar to a conversation I uh, had in another recording last year, where it was an expert on uh, Afghanistan, and he was saying. They needed a similar policy of a gendarmerie rather than a military and civilian policing because the civilian policing process that would come from, say, a United States city or an Australian city, a British city, was inadequate. And the military was far too strong. They right. needed that middle road. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, that's basically what we have is we have two organizations that deal with collective violence, right? One is the military, which is really designed to kill people and break things, and a police force, which you really hope doesn't do that. You know, you don't want a police force that kills people and breaks things. Uh, Mm. Citizens have a very low threshold for collateral damage when it comes to policing. Um, So, but between those two is really the gap um, or the seam where these cartels and gangs operate because they have such a high level of, of violence their willingness to use violence at a very high level, um, but they're also they're also criminals. So where you know who takes who takes over? Is it the military or or the police? Right, the military that is too strong to really work hand in hand with a community that's affected, uh, or a police force that is outgunned by criminals who are in fact former members of the military. Mm. Yeah, astounding problems. I, I teach a policy subject here, and we call these wicked problems. There's just no easy solution to them. Right, yeah, they're sort of, you know, the least worst solution. Yes, 
Yeah. yeah. So no one's going to be happy, but it's about how less unhappy you will be rather than happy. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, what about from the United States' point of view? What has the United States been doing? Well, the U.S. has, uh, again, been trying to, to work with the Mexican uh, government in police reforms, judicial reforms. There's also the Merida Initiative, uh, which is a, a substantial aid package that is, is helping to, to train Mexican law enforcement and, uh, and uh, transform the legal system. Uh, there's also been greater cooperation uh, across the border between the uh, Mexican military and the, and the U.S. military. Um, but there's also kind of a history of mistrust on, on both sides. That is a product of, of our shared history. Um, for example, Mexicans still harbor uh, some ill will towards uh, the United States because the United States had seized a lot of their territory over the years. Um, and so they're, they're always worried about sovereignty issues. I'll just point out that that's nearly 200 years old, that freedom. Right. Yeah, that's, that, this is true, but, um, you know, it's still part of, of, of the culture of the area of Mexicans. In fact, their, their National Military Academy celebrates um, several cadets who, who fought the Americans uh, as they tried to prevent them from taking the Mexican flag down um, when they conquered Mexican territory and annexed it to the United States. So it's still part of that institutional memory, even of the Mexican armed forces. Um, and then on the other side of the equation, the United States is awfully mistrustful of, of sharing too much intelligence or information with Mexican counterparts because they're worried about corruption. Mm. Uh, if we give you any intelligence, this is really just going to end up in, in the hands of, of the cartels and gangs, or you're going to tip them off anyway. So there's, there's a lot of work to be done in overcoming that sort of mutual mistrust between the two sides. Oh, right. Now, I'd like to move on and spend a fair bit of time on, on your recommendations on uh, what should be done. They're quite detailed and I thought very positive, uh, really, given the circumstances. So we're still talking about a wicked problem, but you try and bring things into a perspective, especially in relation to this is not a counterinsurgency. You're, you're, you're trying to differentiate between anti-terrorist activity as opposed to uh, the situation in Mexico. Right, and that—that's um, uh, for me. That's the, the most one of the most important points of the book is that um, even though the levels of violence are very high and mimic things like insurgency or terrorism, uh, it's not low-intensity conflict. I call it high-intensity crime. It's actually a label I, I borrow from post-Cold War literature, um, but it's high-intensity crime. So you have to look at the motivations for the violence rather than, okay, the violence itself has similarities between, you know, terrorism and, uh, and insurgency. So looking at motivations and looking at causes um, gives you a better idea of how to frame solutions or at least approaches to solutions. Because as soon as you say insurgency or terrorism, you immediately then begin to look at counterinsurgency and counterterrorism, mm. uh, which again, is, is, you know, if we're talking about counter counter-narcotics, you know, counter-terrorism, counter-insurgency, counter-narcotics are not the same thing. Just because they share a common prefix doesn't mean they can be employed towards a common end, that you can actually undermine one by using the other. So counter-insurgency, you can do winning hearts and minds. That's one way. Another part of counter-insurgency is a really heavy-handed, enemy-centric approach that we saw in places like Sri Lanka or even Russia. Uh, in, the, in the case of Chechnya. So 
that you probably don't want to do in, in a situation like Mexico. Uh, and counterterrorism, of course, you, you go into things like preemption and prevention and some abuses of civil liberties and civil rights. And that's probably also not the right way to go uh, when it comes to dealing with, with what is criminal activity. I mean, again, very bad criminal activity, but at the same time, the, the guiding star has to be civil rights and civil liberties as a way to begin to build legitimacy and then figure out ways to reduce violence over time. Right, right. So um, do you want to just run through what you think are the key recommendations that you would make in dealing with the problem? Yeah, sure. I, I You know, I, if it's high-intensity crime, what I recommend is high-intensity law enforcement, um, which isn't to say that um, you need to turn Mexico in, into a police state or you need to flood Mexico with police officers. Um, what several studies have suggested um, is that Mexico has a large number of police. However, a lot of them at the municipal level are corrupt, or there are areas and towns that have no police coverage at all. Um, so what needs to be done is actually to train this national gendarmerie um, and also to have certain parts of the Mexican military trained with this gendarmerie, much as the, the Italian army and Italian carabinieri trained together at an, at an academy um, to do police work and to figure out which are the most violent cartels and to go after who they are and where they operate rather than going after all six or seven cartels simultaneously over all areas of Mexico. So you could have, for example, um, what I call a Zeta first strategy, which is to go after the most violent cartel, which is Los Zetas, the one that is the most um, proficient in the use of violence, the one that is most dangerous to the Mexican state. Um, so in essence, pick a side, which is what the Colombians did in the 1990s. They, they said, okay, Pablo Escobar, the Medellin cartel, most vicious, most violent, most challenging of the state. We're going to pick them to go after first. We're going to leave some of the other cartels alone for a little bit, and they'll feed us information and intelligence anyway because they're trying to eliminate the market competitor. So I think if you pick the Zetas first, you can begin to reduce some of the violence in some areas of Mexico because you're eliminating a, a competitor. Um, another idea is to actually focus geographically on certain key areas, especially along the, uh, the northern part of Mexico, those northern states, and focus on how to bring some security to, this, uh, to the citizenry there. So rather than looking at a blanket strategy, covering all of Mexico, focus on some of the more violent areas in northern Mexico. Um, so those are some of the approaches that I that I recommend towards the end of the book. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about, say, what drug legalization would do in a way to kind of suck out the oxygen from these groups, but um, that, that's sort of um, that's a difficult argument in, in a lot of respects because what you would do, let's say if, you know, we were to legalize drugs here in the United States um, overnight or pick a deadline of some kind, you, what would happen is um, a lot of gang members, a lot of cartel members would be immediately thrown out of work. So now you have <laughs> sort of unemployed mm. people who are very proficient in the use of violence, and they would simply move on to another industry or another set of activities, extortion, trafficking, um, smuggling of counterfeit uh, CDs, etc. So it wouldn't necessarily 
solve the problem immediately. It would just cause a labor force to move out of a particular market uh, and seek out new avenues. And again, if their expertise is violence and smuggling, that's what they're going to rely on. Um, that's right. Their, and the U.S. is still going so, to be a very large marketplace that they need to smuggle goods into wherever these particular contraband goods are. Right. And this is, you know, somewhat akin, although not exactly the same as what happened with the fall of the Soviet Union. You had, you know, a lot of KGB, secret police, all of a sudden they're out of work. It's like, well, hmm, what do I do? Well, I'm actually pretty good at, uh, you know, the gun and violence and, and shaking people down. So they get hired by the Russian mafia. Immediately mm. so in the Yeltsin years, you have very similar rates of violence and types of violence occurring in Russia that you have in Mexico. Um, so there, there are sort of prevailing conditions that happen that bring about these, uh, you know, these uh, episodes of high-intensity crime. Right, right. Um, one of the interesting things, one of my other uh, guests I've spoken to about is with the continuing rise in the price of tobacco through tobacco taxing as a policy to reduce smoking, in places like Australia, United States, and in Europe. Uh, tobacco is becoming uh, a smuggling product of choice because the um, penal consequences are very low. The likelihood of going to jail is extremely low, and the profits are becoming higher and higher. Has tobacco started to appear in the mix? Um, you know, it's actually appeared on our northern border with Canada. Uh, right. For precisely the reason you talk about, which is tobacco, cigarette taxes in Canada are much higher than they are in the United States. Um, so you have that, 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 again, that incentive to smuggle north of the border uh, with uh, you know, tobacco and cigarettes. And what's interesting is we have a couple of Native American Indian reservations that border Canada. And as part of the arrangement with the United States government, uh, they do not tax cigarettes at all in the U.S. So they're mm. non-taxed, even cheaper cigarettes on these Indian reservations that can be smuggled into Canada at, at an even lower price. So there's a there's a greater incentive. So we've actually had um, some violent episodes across the northern border because of cigarette smuggling. Again, for the precise reasons that you talk about, that it's, you know, it, it's just at, at such a higher rate of taxation. There's such a higher rate of taxation in Canada as compared to the United States. Mm. So um, I suppose to wrap up, I'm going to ask you to be a, um, well, produce some predictions of the future. Where do you see this whole situation being in about 10 years' time? Ah, boy. Um, I think what we'll see in Mexico is um, you'll probably have a return to the old regime, which is uh, a lot of the political elite will figure out, okay, which tracking group is or which trafficking groups are the best ones to actually have a partnership with. And if they can guarantee a certain level of stability, a reduction in violence, then everything will be fine. Uh, so it's one of those things where you, know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. The deal is you know, take the killing somewhere else, don't be so violent, and we'll let you traffic the drugs up to the gringos in the north. Mm. Well, um, so I think what we will see in the future is a, is a reduction in the number of big cartels. So we probably won't have six or seven. We probably have about three. Um, so there'll be a balance of power of some sort amongst the cartels themselves. Then a return to the collusion uh, by the Mexican government. Uh, rates of violence will, will be reduced. Uh, and, and largely, each side can claim some sort of success. Uh, if you will, 
there'll probably be you know spikes and dips in the violence. It'll be kind of the new normal, if you will, where the mm. horrific spikes in violence all of a sudden. Then there'll be kind of a hey, everybody, calm down. Here's what the arrangement is. That'll return to a certain basic level uh, that's acceptable to everybody. Um, but I think that's that's where the situation is going because it, it, this sort of level of violence can't be sustained over such a long period of time without without deals being made and without eliminations happening, without a cartel or two just self-eliminating because they're just pushed against the wall. They've angered too many cartels. They've angered the government. And so there's a, the, the kind of pylon effect that occurs. Mm. Well, that's not a thrilling outcome for everybody. It's hardly positive, but it's the history would sound like history would prove you're right. It's, again, it's the, it's the least worst outcome. Because mm. uh, we're not going to legalize drugs uh, here in the U.S. Uh, we may legalize marijuana, but we're not going to legalize things like methamphetamine, cocaine, or heroin. Mm. So there'll still be those markets. And also prescription medications are also hugely trafficked between our two countries as well. Um, so there's that, that market, um, trafficking of human beings. So... It, the least worst outcome is, okay, a reduction in violence. And sad to say, people who are getting high, they're always going to get high. Mm. So they're, they're always going to find a way to get drugs, yep. um, especially from, from Mexico. Yep. I've done an exercise in uh, our tutorials with the students every year of, if you wanted to legalize drugs, what would you legalize? And they start by saying everything. And by the time the conversation's over, I ended up with just decriminalizing marijuana because the consequences, right. when you think about it, you don't want five-year-old children smoking PCP. Right. So right. you have to start scaling things back. So realistically, the legalization option is just not going to happen. Yeah, and it, and it depends on, you know, I've had this discussion as well amongst various audiences when I said, what about legalizing drugs? And I said, well, first of all, you need to be clear on two things. One is, when you say drugs, what do you mean? Mm. You mean marijuana all the way through to methamphetamine, um, because those, those are very different drugs. And by legalization, do you mean commercialization? Do you mean mm. the same thing that we do with cigarettes and alcohol? Um, so companies can get involved. And I said, companies are not in the business of getting their product into as few hands as possible. They want their product in as many hands as possible. So do you want that to occur? Do you want coupons for methamphetamine found in your Glamour magazine? (laughs) Sort of, what do you envision it to look like? Uh, Which is sort of the exercise it sounds like you do with your... Yes, very similar. Yeah, I hadn't quite gone that far. That's good. I'll include that in the future with your permission. (laughs) Yeah, but it's sort of, you know, what what does this drug utopia look like? Um, And, you know, um, Portugal has had some success with decriminalization, but that's decriminalization of use not necessarily trafficking and production. Mm. Yeah. So that's, you know, those are those are the, sort of the open questions I have for those folks who want to legalize. I say, okay, well, what what are we talking about here? Um, and who do you want living next door to you? You know, <laughs> you know do you want to... And that, that may give you some indication of when you think about drugs, what you define. You know, it's sort of, okay, you want to have uh, your next-door neighbor who's a drunk, you know, a weed head, uh, a meth freak, um, you know, who do you want? Mm. Tell you, oh, okay, maybe I don't want to have them, you know, <laughs> next door who's hallucinating and what have you. Um, but 
Yeah, it's 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 a difficult subject, and you know, uh, like I said, I think there's always going to be some control over um, intoxicants, mm-hmm. just by as you mentioned, just for public safety and public health. Which means there will always be a black market, which right. means there's an opportunity, a business opportunity for the cartels. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Well, just a final question. Um, would you like to discuss what you're working on now? What's your next project? You know, I, I'm actually working on, on two things. One is related to, to the topics I've, uh, I've worked on for a few, few, few years now. So I'm looking at uh, radical organized crime, which would be like what we've been talking about here, organized crime that is much more confrontational towards the state, that is wanton in their use of violence, and that is aggressively expansionist into into new markets because a lot of organized crime is not that way. Generally, organized crime is much more peaceful, co-opting of the state, and will expand in bits and pieces but not aggressively so into, into other areas. So that's one area I'm looking at. And then another area I'm looking at is um, totally off in, in some respects. I, I call them ideologically motivated cyber groups. Uh, so groups like anonymous um, activists and trying to do a genus and species uh, typology of them. So rather than just saying, okay, they're all hackers or they're all hacktivists, but it's to try to delineate, okay, well, they're the hacktivists who actually have a political motivation in the physical world and will go online to try to enlist others versus groups like anonymous who actually have an ideology that... Um, is somewhat akin to saying, you know, human liberation begins with the liberation of information. Uh, so you have to have the free flow of information in order for humans to be truly free. Uh, and a lot of their activity is, is, is online rather than in the physical world. So um, I call it uh, hacktivists, slacktivists, and wiki warriors. <laughs> and that's kind of where I'm heading right now. Well, that sounds really, really interesting, actually. So, well... Keep me informed of uh, when your next publications come out and we can discuss those as well. Um, well, thank you very, very much for giving me your time today, Paul. Um, I really appreciate it. Sure. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks very much. You have been listening to new books in terrorism and organized crime and my interview with Paul Rexton Khan about his new book, Cartels at War. I hope you enjoyed the program. <laughs>